Pakistan International Airlines ATR-42 is doing a flight from Chitral to Islamabad, but the plane never makes it. What caused this plane to crash into a mountain? Welcome back to the Heartlandings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Thanks to our patrons that joined us on the Zoom calls this weekend. Yeah. It was actually good fun. We met two new ones. That was great fun. Yeah, Dallas and Bob. Dallas and Bob. Y'all were both fun. We'll uh, obviously get to see you again next month. And if you don't know, if you become a $20 patron. Or a flight crew. Flight crew patron. You can join us on monthly Zoom calls where we literally just chit chat with you for up to two hours. Yeah. And we talk about everything and anything and then everything in between. Or we play pool in the background, which is what I was doing last night. <laughs> yeah. Miranda kicked butt, so... I did kick butt. Yeah. Anyways, so that's a thing. And for the $20 patrons that didn't join us this month, hopefully we'll see you next month. Yes. That's... Please RSVP. Yes, it does help us... Respond to the email so we know you're going to be there. Because if nobody responds, then we're more likely to just cancel it. And we don't want to cancel it on you if you want to be there. Yes. Which we almost did last night. So. Yes. Please just be like, yes. I want to be there. <laughs> also say no if it's no. We have two separate times we do for the people from around the world. We do them on the same day. We just do uh, two different times of day so that depending on where you live in the world. You there... can choose a time that works the best for you. Right. There's a time that will work better for you. Also, real quick reminder, you can get ducks. Ducks. If you so choose. You can get the ducks from us you i did fix the form the form on the website originally was only letting you submit email addresses ah. and i did not realize that so ah. i fixed it so now it should be you can put in your address excellent in there it's on the home page of the website we do have a couple of people that emailed us that's fine too i mean if you want to email us and tell us you want a duck however uh, you want to we tell need us, your mailing address though as long as we have a mailing address we will send you ducks yeah so there you go with that then Make sure you submit a listener story. At this point, we're really just taking any listener story you want to tell us. I've been told we might get a railroad story. That'd be fun. That's going to be awesome. That'd be super cool. I'm excited. And honestly, like I like, I also watch like sea disasters, train mm -hmm. disasters. Yeah. Oh yeah. I watch all that stuff. We I mean, watch car crash videos. Yeah. <laughs> we anything. seriously watch car crash video compilations. It's maybe not the healthiest thing to do, but it happens. But also it's like really easy watching and it's terrible, but it's really easy watching. So if you have any kind of stories that have to do with those, it's technically related to the podcast because we talk about disasters. So that being said, I still do like your uh, love stories. Uh relating to aviation sometimes so please send those too yes I'm, if you have I'm them i'm sappy please we yes. need help we only we've the last two months we've had to cancel it because we've only had one story we are happy to continue this we just need more stories yeah so send us a story if you've never sent a story before we would love to hear from you yes it's our way that we get to interact with you because we like to hear your stories we like to be uh, interacting with you and telling your stories for others to hear yeah all right, I think that's it with housekeeping. Housekeeping. So, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Pakistan International Airlines Flight 661. Thank you to... Our listener, Akil. Oh, yeah. From Singapore. Thanks. It's been a while since we've had one of yours. <laughs> but we appreciate it. You probably, like, recommended this, like, a year ago. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm glad we don't record the dates that they got recommended because then I'd feel terrible. Yeah, this it's been a while. So thank you, anyways, for recommending this. This was a hefty one. I'm not gonna lie. This one took Oof. a lot. The report was a lot, to say the least. There was a lot of technical mumbo jumbo, and I'm an engineer, and I thought it was mumbo jumbo, so <laughs> it goes deep and. Deep. They mixed in everything, like, about the history of flight, so the whole story portion, into the analysis, and vice versa, so it was really kind of hard to put together, but we got it. We're and you'll get, get to done. hear the history of flight twice. Yep, pretty much. Great. <laughs> it is kind of pertinent, the reason that you hear it twice, though, because otherwise it wouldn't all make sense. Yeah, I've covered accidents like that before. Yes. So, I get it. It's just a little redundant. <laughs> it is. And it's okay. kind of weird that they do it that way sometimes, but yes, I mean, like I said, sometimes it's necessary because you cover stuff in history of flight, or you don't cover stuff in history of flight that's covered in the analysis, and then you have to go through the play-by-play because you didn't cover it before. Yes, and it's all, yeah. Well, it's and it's thing. the two different perspectives: it's the perspective of what they knew when the accident was happening and everything like that, and immediately after the accident. All those things. And then there's the what they found out when they backtracked through the whole thing. Yeah, and like looked at the CVR and all that yes. stuff. Yes. So here we go. This happened on December 7th of 2016. So this was pretty Not recent. Not that long ago. Yeah. This was an ATR-42-500. So the ATR-42 was the smaller version of the atr they still are very much a popular airplane with a lot of small regional carriers. The ATRs are twin turboprops. They're high wings, and they're just used for used for short hops. They're smaller airplanes. This one had the tail number Alpha Papa-Bravo Hotel Oscar. This flight was from Chitral to Islamabad in Pakistan. The captain was Saleh Janjua. He was 43 years old. He had 11,265.4 hours total, of which... 1,216 hours were on the type. So, relatively experienced. Relatively experienced on the type. Ish. Ish. This is where things get weird. And this is where it gets kind of complicated. Oh, and by the way, plenty of Miranda Rage warning. Oh, yeah. You have been warned. You have been warned. This is going to make you mad. First Officer A was Ali Akram. He was 40 years old. He had 1,742 hours total, of which 1,416 hours were on the type. We could talk about him later, because there's some interesting stuff. He, in specific, was training on this route. So he was new to this route. It, this is the first officer? This is first officer A. a. So there's two? There's two yeah. first officers. We'll talk about this. There's the captain, first officer A, and first officer B. We'll talk about this. I, whenever this happens, stuff goes wrong. I feel like... Kind of. I mean, this is still common practice these days. There's usually two well, first officers it, on it, training stuff, but... It makes sense. We'll talk about him later, but point is, he's training. He's the trainee pilot. He's training on this route. He's... He's, like, he's experienced. He's, he's an experienced ex first officer. Relatively experienced. I mean, in this grand scheme of things, he has the majority of his hours on the ATR, but he only has 1,700 hours total, so... Meanwhile, first officer B was Ahmed Mansour Janjua. Yes, same last name as the captain. However, not related. They are not related. Oh, okay. It's like having a smith and a smith. Yes, it's pretty common. He was 26 years old. He had 570 hours total. Oh, no. Of which 369 hours were on the ATR. This was the captain? No, no. this is the oh, first, first officer, officer B. B. And he is fully qualified on the ATR. 
Uh huh. And and he's helping train. Uh huh. Yep. On the route. He is already trained on this route. Just just on the path between these two airports. That's all it is. Both are technically fully qualified first officers per their operations. They are qualified per Pakistan's qualifications. Randa is squinting. Uh, I don't like this. We'll talk about it. The aircraft had already operated five flights that day, before its sixth and final flight of the day, being the accident flight to Islamabad. For the beginning of the flight, the captain was accompanied by First Officer A, the training First Officer. There was no discussion before or during the flight as to who was considered pilot flying or who was pilot monitoring. Uh Uh-huh. But Pakistan International Standard Operating Procedures required that the trainee First Officer be the pilot flying. If he's training, he needs to be flying. I guess that makes sense, because he's, he's training. Yeah, he's training. What, how could he learn anything if he's not flying? Yep. Makes right, sense. exactly. The aircraft took off from the mountain town of Chitral on runway 20 at 3.38 p.m. and 50 seconds, with 42 passengers and 5 crew. The rotation and control inputs to the control columns were done by the first officer for the takeoff, so it appears that they were performing their roles per the standard operating procedures. So then if it, I mean, it kind of makes sense if it's like standard operating procedure that they wouldn't have to talk about it because it's already in the standard operating procedure. And for all we know, they talked about it before the flight. Yeah, when they're not in the cockpit. This is, yeah, this, this just could be what it is. The autopilot was engaged at 3.39 p.m. and 20 seconds, so less than a minute after takeoff. The flight crew were climbing the aircraft at 145 knots instead of the optimal 160 knots, as they were pitching for best climb, which is only 10 knots above their safe speed minimum of the aircraft in its configuration and its weight. This is standard per Pakistan International Standard Operating Procedures, but not discussed by the flight crew as it should have been, and it's also not standard for the aircraft type per the manufacturer. As you can tell, Nick's including a little more of the analysis detail than normal because I don't go into any of the pilot actions or CRM. So yes. I asked him to do it in the history of flight. Yep. Okay. I had a lot of mechanical crap. And there's a lot of crew stuff, so. Ten minutes after takeoff, the aircraft climbed to a cruising altitude of 13,500 feet and a cruising speed of 186 knots instead of their planned 230 knots, as the crew were not performing optimal speed management still. The captain did this purposefully, however, after requesting that he reduce their cruise speed setting on the power levers from the other two crew members, possibly due to turbulence. In the report, they were like, after some form of discussion about turbulence. And it was like, okay, does that mean it was because of turbulence? Does that mean he was planning for turbulence? What? I mean, they were in the mountains, so, and flying relatively low. So those are possibilities, but there's also mechanical possibilities later. Yep. They weren't really concise in the report on that, so a no. little ambiguous. There are some things that are definitely a little bit of like, I don't know why this matters or why this happened. Around that time, the captain took over as the pilot flying without any official announcement or discussion mm-hmm. between the flight crew. The first officer just seemed to cooperate as such from that time. From takeoff to 4.04 p.m., which is about 26 minutes, the flight appeared to be going smoothly. At 4.04 p.m. and 45 seconds, the captain began making an announcement to the passengers. During his announcement, at 4.04 p.m. and 56 seconds, a fault appeared in the cockpit for the number one propeller electronic control unit, or PEC-1. The first officer announced this out loud as well, and the captain acknowledged. The captain then asked the first officer to review the quick reference handbook, The first officer then requested to reduce the power levers and to bring one of the passengers, who was a company engineer, up to the cockpit to assist. 
They reduced the power, and the airplane began losing speed to around 146 knots. Relatively slow. The captain completed his announcement, so he went on to finish his announcement after being interrupted, then once again asked for the quick reference handbook checklist for the situation. 4.06 p.m. and 34 seconds, the flight crew attempted to reset the PEC-1. After the reset, the first officer announced that the condition lever, which is basically the mixture in this case, it's not exactly what it does, but it controls the fuel-air ratio in a sense. It, it controls the condition of how torque is produced. It's, it's long and complicated. We're not going to dive too deep into this, but this is essentially the mixture on these engines. So you have three the levers. fuel-air mixture? Right. So you have three levers, typically on propeller airplanes. You have the throttle, which is power, torque, exactly. Um, you have the condition lever or the mixture lever, which controls fuel-air mixture. And then you have the propeller control, which changes the pitch of the propeller. We'll talk more about that Yep. later. Real quick, the mm -hmm. PCE, is that what it is? PEC, Propeller -E Propeller Electronic Controller. Okay, so it's not working. It has a fault, yes, on PEC-1, which is the left engine. The left engine? engine? Okay, yes. okay. Yep. After the reset, the first officer announced that the condition lever for the engine 1 should be put into the auto mode. At that time, the PEC-1 fault appeared again in the cockpit. So... That it hadn't fixed the problem. The reset didn't do anything. First Officer B informed the crew that they should increase the condition lever to 100% override before resetting the PEC to 1. The captain requested that they read the QRH checklist, the Quick Reference Handbook checklist, for the reset again to be sure that that's what it said. Yeah, I was going to say, shouldn't you reference it first before you just do something like yeah, that? Yeah, so in theory they did, but then there was some confusion over it after the, the jump seat first officer was like, you need to do this instead. So they did that. The PEC-1 was reset three times, and it never worked, before they finally set it in the off position. So is the engine not working? No, not exactly. That's not what this is. This just has to do with the propeller, but it can still be controlled manually. This is just an auto function. Okay. So it's it gets really complicated. Again, we'll get into this in a little bit. I just want to, like, be clear. Like, it's not... The engine's still working. Yep. Yes. They can program it manually to do what it's supposed to do. Correct. Yes. There's okay. nothing inherently, like, panicky about this. Okay. No. Which they're, is why they're not panicking. They're just trying to fix the fault. Mm -hmm. Right. They were trying to see if they could reset it so that it wouldn't be a problem. 4.07 p.m. and 26 seconds, the first officer drew attention to the reduced speed. During the entire reset situation, the power levers were gradually being increased to maintain a reasonable speed. 4.08 p.m. and 33 seconds, the first officer B, the one in the jump seat, who was still in the jump seat, requested that he switch out with the first officer A, per the standard operating procedures, which called for it in the event of unusual operations. Should something weird start happening in the cockpit, they're supposed to switch first officers to the one that's already trained on the route, so that he can focus on flying. Okay. However... This like this isn't an emergency, right? No, not know, as of yet. I know it's an un an a unusual situation, mm -hmm. but they can still fly the airplane. Correct. Yes. So as is, far as they know. Okay. Oh, okay. Well. <laughs> anyway. We have a long way to go. <laughs> okay. So, but so would that be a situation where they'd have to switch out? It's anything abnormal. So anything that doesn't involve their normal operations, normal navigation, normal flying. This is an abnormal situation. They got a fault in the cockpit. Now, suddenly, their attention is a little bit distracted. It's not normal. So, he's not able to focus on training on the route. All right. So, okay. 
Okay. Per the standard operating procedures, they're supposed to switch, and they did so. Okay. Well, at so. least they're following standard... Well, kind of. Uh. Their CRM's not great, but... Yep. The At least they're following standard operating yes. procedure. Yep. The captain acknowledged and accepted the switch, so they did switch. The airspeed was gradually increasing during this time to 160 knots, still maintaining around 13,500 feet on a heading of 149 degrees. So, question. I'm sorry. I can't. No, you're good. That's what you're it's here good. for. Uh... Who is monitoring the power levers? So they're actually per the captain flying. It's his responsibility. So whoever's flying. Yeah, so the captain. So the captain is the one in charge of the levers right now. Yes. Yes. Okay. 4.08 p.m. and 54 seconds, the captain finally called for that engineer that was a passenger on board to come to the cockpit. That's a little weird, right? Mm, Yes and no. It's actually not totally abnormal. I've heard of this happening more recently where if there's a company mechanic or engineer or something and they've got a really strange situation... I mean, it's kind of like UA-232. It's like, you have the resources. Use it. Maybe use it. Yeah, I guess so. He doesn't end up being very useful. Oh, well. That's pretty much the only time we'll talk <laughs> much about him. good that did. That's pretty much the only time we'll talk about him, because... I have a question. Yeah. Was he ever uh, seatbelted anywhere? They never said. Okay. The report doesn't say anything else about him. That's unfortunate. Isn't it? The engineer arrived in the cockpit around 4.10 p.m. in five seconds, and by this time, the airplane was up to 196 knots, so a pretty good speed. Pretty safe Still speed. not what their cruise speed was nope. supposed to be. Nope. Still not what their cruise speed was supposed to be. Meanwhile, the captain had communicated a frequency change to the Islamabad approach with the air traffic controller. However, they didn't actually change frequencies yet, so that was another thing. Moments after the engineer arrived, a thud was heard in the airplane, and the left engine began rolling back. 4.10 p.m. in 38 seconds, the captain announced, Engine gone, quote-unquote. The captain then asked the first officer to set the power management knob, which is an autopilot function, to the MCT, or maximum continuous thrust setting. This is per the checklist. Yes, this is required by their standard operating procedures and their checklists. For one operating engine? For single engine operations. Okay. And the number one engine was no longer producing power, so this was appropriate. But there was an issue with this, as the power levers were still not in the quote-unquote notch, which on most modern airplanes there are notches or detents that they can be set in, and each one does specific things. Right. But because he wanted to fly slower because of the turbulence, it wasn't in a notch. Right. Oh. This was required for the autopilot to adjust the power to full if needed. Instead, they were left in a lower setting, and so the power management system would only be able to go to a maximum of what the power levers were set at. So, known as the power lever angle. So, whatever angle they're at, that's the maximum the engines can increase to. Which makes sense, unless you increase it into a notch. Right. This is also standard on, like, Airbus and a lot of the newer Boeings and stuff. I'm glad you explained that, because I failed to do so. It's okay. (laughs) This was because the captain had reduced both power levers when the number one engine lost power. When an engine flames out, the checklist called for immediate reduction on the power lever on the affected engine only. Oh, but he moved both? Not both. both. He reduced both. Oh. The autopilot was still maintaining directional control at this time. However, they were losing speed, and the airplane began slowly rolling to the left. Very slowly. 4.11 p.m. and 19 seconds, the captain requested that the first officer coordinate with the air traffic controller to descend to 7,500 feet and make a mayday call. All the while, the speed had reduced to 148 knots. The first officer coordinated a descent with air traffic control and but... switched over to the Islamabad approach and reported their position over typo, which is just a 
a point but along the route, but did not make a mayday call. The captain had already set the altitude setting on the autopilot to 9,300 feet before he made that call at 4.11 p.m. and 4 seconds, but this was later reduced to the 7,500 feet requested at 4.11 p.m. and 40 seconds. 4.11 p.m. and 50 seconds, so 10 seconds later, the sound in the airplane had become very loud, and the captain voiced his concern about it before the noise increased significantly again just four seconds later. Over the next 16 to 17 seconds, the captain reduced the power on the number two engine and then added the power back into the number two engine, trying to check if the noise was being caused by that engine. 4.12 p.m. and 14 seconds. The autopilot was having such a difficult time maintaining directional control at this point that it disengaged per its design, requiring the captain to take over flying the airplane manually. The airplane was beginning to have a strong left bank and began losing speed quite rapidly. The captain tried but was not able to maintain directional control. 4.12 p.m. and 21 seconds, the stall warning activated very, very, very briefly. They say 0.1 of a second. Like, I'm like, how did they even notice if that even happened? Because it's on the FDR. Right. <laughs> That's pretty much it. The, 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 the pilots probably had no nope. idea. Yeah, probably not. Didn't even have time to react. At that time, they were at 13,338 feet and 127 knots. So yeah, they were pretty close to stalling. The airplane continued to roll to the left and descend to 12,782 feet and 122 knots. 4.12 p.m. and 35 seconds. The airplane was in a 70-degree left bank on 120 knots when the stall warning sounded again, briefly, and the stick shaker activated. The captain again reduced and increased the number two engine power lever. 4.12 p.m. and 44 seconds. As the power lever was increased in the number two engine and the captain was controlling full input to the right, the aircraft suddenly and unexpectedly rolled and yawed hard to the right, going over 450 degrees to yep. the right. They and, did a barrel roll. And losing 5,100 feet of altitude down to 8,350 feet before rolling back to the left and leveling out in a wings level attitude in a span of just 24 seconds. What the heck happened there? Ending at 4.13 p.m. at night. This seconds. is why I asked if that engineer was strapped down. Yeah. They don't yeah. say anything about that. Yeah, they literally did a full barrel roll over and still went over another, what was it? 50, 90. 90 degrees and came back to level after that. But during that, they had also nosed over and went literally pretty much straight down 5,100 feet in how, 24 seconds. How is it? So I understand why it's banking to the to the left, right? Because the left engine's out. Mm -hmm. And so the right engine's producing all the thrust. Mm -hmm. So it has more lift on that side. I understand that part. Mm -hmm. Why did it? all of a sudden just go to the right? Uh-huh. That's a great question. I talk about it. Does it have something to do with, like, the elevators and stuff? We'll talk about it later. Kind of, this no. Is, this is where things get really complicated in the analysis later, so this has to be left for her, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. I'm just, like, what? We'll put it this <laughs> Wait, way. what? We'll put it this way. This is just as confusing as it sounds. Yeah, okay. I'm... Also not entirely clear, but... <laughs> and to be honest, I don't think the investigators are either. They use the same words in the analysis and the findings to describe it, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Great. Yeah. During the drop, the airspeed increased to around 200 knots. After leveling off, the first officer inquired about the power setting, which had been decreased. It was then gradually increased, but the airplane was not able to maintain altitude or speed, with both continually reducing again though seemingly in a controlled state. 
So at this point, like they're not barreling out of control all of a sudden. No, but they're they still losing some altitude amount, and speed. They're losing altitude and speed, but at some at a much more like reasonable rate that they have some amount of control over. 4.15 p.m. and 50 seconds, the first officer in the jump seat repeatedly told the captain not to bank and to pay attention to the altitude to try to level off at 5,200 feet. Mind you, this is the guy in the jump seat. Yeah, this is the guy in the jump seat. Yeah, thanks for being backseat driver, my dude. Yeah, right. Yeah. The captain tried to hold altitude. Then the flight crew contacted the air traffic controller requesting shorter vectors and priority landing at Islamabad among making a mayday call finally. They were finally like, no, this is well, serious. finally, yeah. Just barrel rolled out of the sky. Yeah. But basically they wanted a faster route to get to Islamabad and they wanted to be able to land immediately. Mind you, they're still kind of far away. Yeah, is that, like, the right thing to do? Shouldn't they have found a closer airport they Un- would have been able to land at? Unfortunately, what I have to say about that is there's not many options. Oh, find a field. They're in the mountains. Oh, well. They're still very much in the mountains. <laughs> they are surrounded by mountains where they are. Well, I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> I guess that's how they feel, too, but... The air traffic controller then requested that they turn on their transponder. It was off? I have no idea. This was mentioned in passing in the report. That's all that's said about it. It doesn't say if they acknowledged that. It doesn't say if they did. It doesn't say if it was off. Anyways, <laughs> that's a thing that I thought I'd throw in there because that was just like a what? During all of this time, there was a lot of confusion and a lot of dictation, but a lack of leadership by the captain and crew resource management overall. There just wasn't. It was yeah. Seemingly not there. When something like this happens, it's super crucial to have good crew resource management. Yes. So you can, you know, focus on flying the airplane safely. Right. And having people help each other out, right? Right. This was not happening. 4.15 p.m. and 51 seconds, the aircraft began a right bank of 37 degrees, which was seemingly to avoid the mountains, but was not discussed. They just suddenly went into a right turn, and nobody said anything. All right. All the while, the airplane was bleeding off too much speed, which would make it difficult to control the airplane and maintain altitude. The airplane was nearing the stall speed once again. 4.17 p.m. and 20 seconds, the airplane began turning left again to fly toward Islamabad. While in the left turn, the airplane was maintaining 5280, or one mile. One mile. <laughs> above I, sea level. I saw that. I was like, mm, I know. <laughs> it was kind of satisfying. One mile above sea level. But speed had reduced to 156 knots, but the power was increased to the right engine by a lot it was they were near... increasing it the entire time yeah they were increasing it the entire time they were nearing full throttle at this point 4 18 p.m and 45 seconds the stall warning sounded again for three and a half seconds the captain kept increasing the right input on the controls to keep the airplane from banking too heavily to the left so i mean i realize that they have to keep the right engine up because it's the mm-hmm. only engine working but should mm-hmm. they have it be that fast if it's going to increase lift that much on that side he's countering it with controls right yeah that still sucks though but this is what you're trying to do oh, i mean you huh. kind of have to because they're also not maintaining altitude anyway still no, even with I all that throttle true. and they're just trying to do their best to make it somewhere okay well i guess that makes sense the airplane was once again descending this time they were at 4809 feet above sea level, which was 2,168 feet above the ground, and they were losing speed. They were only 128 knots at this point. 4.18 p.m. and 52 seconds, the Terrain Warning Alert System, or TAWS, TAWS. began sounding Terrain Ahead, Terrain Ahead, because of the low altitude. At this point, 1,825 feet above the ground. 4.19 p.m. and 2 seconds, the TAWS sounded Pull Up, as they were at just 
1174 feet above the ground, and descending. 4.19pm and 45 seconds, the aircraft increased slightly to 1205 feet above the ground, and the captain asked if they could turn the airplane, presuming that they wanted to try to turn away from mountains and toward Islamabad. Yeah. 4.20pm and 23 seconds, the aircraft was still banking left, with increasing right inputs from the flight crew. The aircraft's speed was decreasing through 120 knots at this point, when it entered a full aerodynamic stall at just 850 feet above the ground. The airplane banked heavily left to 90 degrees and then nosed over, increasing the airspeed, but the airplane was just 284 feet above the ground at this point. Yeah, there's, there's nothing. Which was not recoverable. The airplane struck the hillside and disintegrated on impact, along with a fireball, three and a half nautical miles south-southeast of Havilion, Pakistan. All 47 on board perished in the accident, including a popular Pakistani singer who turned preacher and entrepreneur, as well as a member of the Chitral traditional royal family. There were 44 Pakistanis on the airplane, one Austrian, one Chinese, and one South Korean citizen that all perished in this accident. So, now to talk about everybody that was involved. This investigation was performed by the Aircraft Accident Investigation Board of Pakistan, AAFB, with the assistance of the French Bureau d'Enquête et d'Analysis, or the BEA. D'Analysis. <laughs> Then I say, I don't know. I don't know that one, actually. <laughs> Anyways, it's the Bureau of Inquiry and Analysis. Yeah, that. The Canadian Transportation Safety Board and the American National Transportation Safety Board, since they were the countries of aircraft, engine, and propeller manufacturer, respectively. Both black boxes were recovered from the wreckage and were brought to the BEA in France for analysis by the AAIB, TSB, and BEA together. The FDR became a vital tool in the investigation despite being relatively primitive and not recording as many parameters as most passenger planes of the time did and do today. As is the case on many episodes on our podcast, as well as many disasters in all sorts of industries and aspects of life, not just one thing went wrong. In fact, not even two things went wrong. This flight had three separate mechanical malfunctions that were found during the in-depth examinations of both wreckage as well as the FDR. In the interest of time, I will not be going as in-depth on each of these failures as much as they maybe deserve, because each really deserves a full episode's worth of analysis and description. I will do a roadmap, tell you the history of flight all over again with all the technical mumbo-jumbo mixed in, so you can understand how in quote-unquote real time each failure affected the accident sequence. By December, the BEA had produced the FDR-CVR analysis report, which produced some very interesting information. From the CVR, the crew definitely knew something was wrong with the left engine, so investigators looked at the FDR data for that engine and found something distinctly weird. They found that there was an in-flight shutdown of engine 1, and their goal was to determine the exact causes as well as the effects on the flight. In the interest of time, here are the things that they found not to be the cause. In-flight fire, bird strike, or sabotage. Just so we're clear. Fair enough. At 3.48, the FDR began recording the beginning of things going truly wrong with the number one propeller. And from here until impact is broken into eight phases. There is a graph of relevant FDR data on our website, which Miranda will be looking at now. In phase one, the left propeller speed began oscillating for almost seven minutes. It's very slight. Specifically on the graph, you're going to want to be looking at the red line. Then in phase two, it began gradually decreasing for six minutes. Then in phase three, it near instantaneously jumped from 62% to 102% and held there for 15 to 18 seconds before hitting phase four, 
where it decreased sharply into non-computed data, which on the graph just looks like a block of no data, for less than 30 seconds. In phase 5, the propeller speed began increasing gradually to 50-ish percent in 28 seconds before jumping in phase 6 up to 120% by phase 7, where it held at the high propeller speed for 41 seconds before dropping sharply again into non-computed data. This was on the left engine? This was on the left engine. That's the propeller speed. Ew. It's a roller coaster. Throughout the whole thing, the whole accident sequence. As you might imagine, planes are designed to uh, not do that and have specific mechanisms to prevent propeller overspeeds like that. But let's start with phase one, with the slight oscillation there. The AAIB and the Canadian TSB did a full analysis of the number one engine and found our first failure. One blade on the power turbine, stage one fan had broken off, causing impact damage to other blades as well. It's hard to say exactly when that happened, but advanced analysis showed that it probably happened during the previous flight, and it's entirely possible that you couldn't see it during the pre-flight inspection. The fracture surface showed characteristic features of... Fatigue. Fatigue. In this instance, the crack propagated from an area of atomic level voids, called a shrinkage, causing a micro-level stress concentration, which started the crack, which advanced a little bit with every rotation until it reached its critical crack length and broke. If you want more about fatigue, we have a ton of episodes. Welcome to the Fatigue Podcast, which we haven't talked about fatigue in a while, but then we circled back. (laughs) Here we are again. (laughs) But that's not all. So why is this important? It caused an imbalance in the rotation of the power turbine shaft, leading engine one to start deteriorating bit by bit since the beginning of the accident flight, or maybe even during part of the previous flight. So this is where I'm kind of like, okay, so maybe they thought it was turbulence. Maybe it was the number one engine shaking. I don't know. Huh. At 4.04, the captain tried to make a passenger announcement, but was rudely interrupted by the Propeller Electronic Control, or PEC, for the number one engine. He then asked for the checklist. The training first officer asked to bring power back and to call the engineer from the cabin, and the aircraft speed dropped to 146 knots. Green line is the speed on the graph. The captain finished his announcement and asked again to read the checklist. The crew attempted to restart the PEC. The training first officer said to put the condition lever to auto, and then the PEC-1 fault came on again. The first officer in the jump seat said to put the condition lever to 100% override, and then reset the PEC, which is what the checklist said to do, and wasn't done the first time. So the captain asked to open the checklist and read it again. All the while, and with the crew unaware of the situation, the imbalanced fan was deteriorating things in the engine, and the propeller speed is dropping. Here's why. Though the propeller wasn't yet overspeeding at this point, let's talk about one of the mechanisms to prevent that. It's called an overspeed governor, or OSG. I'm going to say overspeed governor a lot because... A lot. I could not remember what OSG stood for. This works based on the speed of the propellers initiating a series of events if it's higher than the limit. When that happens, the centripetal force causes flyweights to open a valve to bleed oil from the overspeed line to slow the propellers. Okay. The AAIB, NTSB, and BEA all worked on this one and found that the left overspeed governor recently had some maintenance done on it. And this maintenance was performed abroad and was unauthorized. Yay! Then we wonder why we have issues with engines. Here's the second mechanical failure. The overspeed governor had a fractured pin from when the maintenance was putting it back together. 
This defect normally wouldn't have an effect on the performance of the overspeed governor unless combined with abnormal metallic contamination in the oil, leading to increased friction. Guess what? We're at another mechanical defect. The vibrations from the broken fan blades caused a deterioration of the number six bearing seal, leading to metallic contamination of the oil. Because of the contaminated oil and the missing pin, one part of the overspeed line drained, decreasing the pressure at the propeller valve module protection valve. That's something new we haven't talked about, and this is our third failure. The propeller valve module, or PVM, does everything from basic speed set to feathering to low pitch protection to help contain propeller overspeed. It has two states. Protected? And unprotected. Yeah, good job. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You figured it out. Yeah. (laughs) I I used the big wrinkle brain. The big wrinkle brain. In the protected state, it prevents the propeller blades from moving into low pitch angles that would cause a lot of drag on the plane because they would be close to flat to the airflow. Well, as pressure to the PVM fell, the protection valve moved to somewhere between the protected mode and unprotected mode. So now the only thing controlling the propeller blade angles is the overspeed governor. The blade pitch angle began to increase toward feathering, and the propeller speed began to drop, and no one on the flight deck noticed. No, because they were all focused on they were all reading the checklist and yep. stuff. They yep. were all frantically trying to reset the PEC and finally succeeded in getting it to turn off. Both power levels were then increased, and so did the airspeed. The non-training first officer then asked to switch, given the abnormal circumstances, so the training first officer moved to the jump seat. The engineer joined the cockpit at 410, and the airspeed was 196 knots. But the propeller speed on the left side was still low, at 69%, and it didn't have anything to do with the PEC they were spending so much time with. At 410 and 33 seconds, a quote-unquote transient noise was heard, and then a sudden abnormal noise. The torque in the number one engine dropped to zero, meaning the engine failed. And it wasn't producing any amount of power. Nope. And the propeller speed shot up to 102%, which is the limit prescribed by the overspeed governor. What also increased was the engine temperature, which should have been decreasing since the engine failed. Yeah, that's a little weird. And no one noticed, still. Investigators determined that because of the missing pin in the overspeed governor and the contaminated oil, one of the fly weights broke, and this allowed the propeller valve module to move into the unprotected mode, and the propeller speed increased, though the overspeed governor seemed to be working because it didn't go above the 102.5% threshold. It was somehow working with a single broken flyweight. The captain said engine gone and asked to set the power management knob to maximum continuous thrust, but it wouldn't do that as we discussed. Proper action for an engine flameout is to pull back power to that engine. Mm -hmm. So the captain pulled back both power levers. That might just be... Uh, and this is what I thought earlier. Just a automatic thing. I think it's just reactionary. Yeah, because... He did a, several things that were reactionary, and it's per training. Because if but you I think, think about it, you're supposed to usually advance or throttle them down at the same time, because you don't want engine asymmetry. Right, so. and you get used to that. Yeah. But So his training probably had him reduce power immediately. But don't do that. But you're only supposed to do it to the affected engine, Not and both. his brain didn't have time to like Separate, remember that. Yeah. He just did the action, and that was both. So the next step is to feather the affected engine. At this point, the propeller is still at 102% speed and is causing drag and an asymmetric condition because it isn't feathered. Oh, I was going to ask that. In fact, it's causing three times the drag that it would if it was feathered. Yikes. So now you're understanding why they're turning left. Yes. 
Well, I knew why they were turning off to begin with. But, but it's more it's than just a dead engine. More, yeah. It's it's more than the engine just not working. Is it because they're flat instead of feathered? Not quite yet. Okay. They're they're not feathered, but they're not flat. Okay. Now the airspeed is dropping to 154 knots, and there is no conversation still about the high speed of engine one's propeller. Fuel was shut off to the engine, and then the propeller speed finally dropped to below 30%, and the propeller started moving toward feathering. The captain advanced power on engine two, and airspeed began to increase. All good things, good things. But because the overspeed governor wasn't active anymore, a spring pushed the valve of the plunger between the broken flyweights, rendering the overspeed governor completely inoperational. Oops. Not that anyone knows this is happening. No. no. There was, is... How, how would you? Right. And, I mean, the speed's under 30%, but if it starts to go back up, there's nothing really stopping it. No, the, the, the propeller could just fly completely off. So, the captain asked the pilot monitoring to coordinate a lower altitude and call Mayday. And then, Engine 1's propeller began spinning in earnest again, increasing to over 120%, because now the overspeed governor's not working, and this went unnoticed. Other than the noise increasing, which the captain asked about, but no one was really listening to him. Mm-hmm. The airspeed reduced to 148 knots. The first officer forgot to make the mayday call. We're doing great here. Investigators determined that because the propeller valve module protection valve moved so slowly, the feather command was removed and the propeller blade angle began to decrease toward flat, making the propeller speed up making the blade angle decrease more, making the propeller speed up, and it's a self-propelling cycle. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but we have fail-safes, right? Right? Yes. I mean, do they even work now? I feel like nothing works anymore. The secondary low-pitch stop protection entered the scene, stopping the blade pitch angle from going to full flat. But at 4, 12, and 15 seconds, it got overridden. Yeah. So now the propeller is basically flat to the wind and is a huge drag. Literally. Ha ha ha. Ha ha. Two puns in a row. Good job. I'm sorry. Yeah, you, I'm so you, sorry. I bet you feel proud of yourself for that. <laughs> <laughs> I was writing it and face palming myself. Oh, so. God. <laughs> Anyways, yes, the, all of this is true. Like, it's just thing after thing after thing going wrong. And, like, no one's noticing what exactly is happening. Awesome. We'll talk about that, too. The first officer's on the radio with Islamabad approach, and the captain is sitting there wondering what the hell that super loud noise is. So he pulled back engine two, kept it there for a few seconds, then put it back because that didn't change anything. Then the autopilot disengaged, drastically adding to the captain's workload since he is now needing to manually control the plane. But the amount that he can control the plane, the extent of his control input, wasn't enough to maintain direction, and their speed's dropping, requiring more control input. The airspeed dropped to 120 knots, and the propeller speed is now at 123%. Holy Way too fast. The captain is desperately trying to get out of the left turn, and the stall warning sounded, and the stick shaker activated. For some reason, the captain pulled engine 2 down to a power lever angle of 33 degrees, then advanced it again to 54 degrees. I don't know what he's doing. The crew attempted to feather engine 1, now understanding that something was weird with the propeller... The condition lever for engine one was moved out of fuel shutoff, and the engine temperature rose. Slightly. To me, this means that they must still have fuel flowing into the engine somehow. Well, they just turn, they just turn fuel back on. Right. But even then, like... I didn't... I, do they need to do that to feather the engine? But what this means to me is that there's still an ignition happening somewhere. Yes, there is. 
because, I mean, even if you increase the condition lever, I mean, it could be flowing fuel into the engine but not igniting, so that wouldn't change the temperature. But there's still an ignition happening somewhere, even though they shut the engine off. That's why the temperatures keep changing. The stall warning and stick shaker went off again, and the crew advanced the number two engine and the right rudder together to counter the asymmetry. With the low airspeed, the propeller on engine one wasn't producing as much drag, and it abruptly dropped in speed to below 25%, then basically stopped spinning. The crew was working against something so hard so that they could turn to the right or against the left. And then suddenly they did because the left propeller stopped spinning and it was so unexpected that they were in a completely uncontrolled condition. So you remember when you asked? Yeah, so because the propeller was spinning, it was causing drag. When it stopped spinning, they went, wee because they were putting so much exactly. input to now try to get was, it to level out that now, they overcorrected and it barrel rolled Now instead. they overcorrected. They- yeah, over, they overcorrected. Overcorrected. But the whole thing there is that they didn't know that. Well, nope. of course they wouldn't. How They would have no idea this was happening with the left engine. Nope. None. Zero. You're Zip. correct. Nada. Like, they knew it wasn't working, and that was about it. Like, That's You're 100% correct, actually. So I'm going to read exactly what they wrote in the conclusions of Phase 8 when this happened, because I don't entirely understand, but I'm putting the words out there. Quote, As the blade pitch angle went on decreasing, the propeller was not able to generate sufficient power in comparison with power absorbed by the engine and its associated RGB, which stands for reduction gearbox. As a result, propeller speed decreased quickly after the stall. Blade angle most probably settled close to low pitch in flight with a propeller speed likely below 5%. And that made them barrel roll. So all of a sudden, somehow, the pit, basically, all of that just means that the propeller stopped spinning. Something just made it stop spinning. And then they went... They barrel rolled. Yeah, because all of a sudden they didn't have all they that drag. They had all the input to the right, yeah. Yeah, all of a sudden they didn't have all that drag on the left, and they had all this input to the right. Yeah. What Nick didn't mention is at this point the crew, after recovering, was hyperventilating. Yeah, I didn't mention that because I knew you did. And their voices are trembling because they are freaked the f*** out. I mean, same. They estimate that it took them about 20 to 30 seconds to kind of come back to... Well, yeah, if you've ever had a huge adrenaline rush before, it takes you a second to calm down. And investigators don't blame them for that at all. They're like, oh, there's... No, no, no. There's... It's a fight-or-flight response. They can't, they can't control sure. that. And they weren't trained to deal with any of this crap. Yeah. Like, how would they know that putting all that input on the right eventually would have them barrel roll to the right? Right. They wouldn't. Exactly. <laughs> and then a possible cross-control of the elevator... Caused a pitch disconnect. Somehow, so this is something was that's... Was the first officer and the captain putting in weird stuff? That's what it sounds like. This is something weird that's come up before, and I, I can't explain this because it's not supposed to do that. But the now elevator the only... is supposed to work only in one direction or the other and not both. Both, yeah. So that happened, making only one side of the elevator actually do what they wanted to do? I don't know. But they recovered from the stall barrel roll and leveled off with an airspeed of 200 knots. But the propeller's back to causing drag. Precisely, it is causing seven times what it would be under normal, proper circumstances. Yikes. And a plane in this configuration can only do one thing. Descend. It can't climb, it can't maintain. No, because the, the drag is too much on the left side. Way too much. So even with their cross control with the asymmetry, the only thing they can do is descend and they can't they can't do anything about it. They don't have the altitude to land anywhere safe. They're in the mountains. Yeah. They're doomed. Yeah. So that continued all the way for the descent and ultimately the captain didn't realize that they wouldn't cross the mountains that he was trying to cross and they crashed. 
Sorry, that was a really brief ending, but I mean... That's what happened. everything else was explained, so... Yeah. There's a couple of other things we're going to go through that will make Miranda mad. Yeah, I didn't cover the Miranda rage parts yet. So, a couple questions. Okay. First off... I'll do my best. I mean, you might not have the answers, right? And I'm okay with that. But maintenance-wise, <laughs> are we going to get into that? Yes, we'll talk about that's, that. Okay. That's the rage part. Okay. We'll talk about that. Because obviously something wrong happened there. So right. I can get into that a little bit now because I'm currently looking at it on my screen. So Pratt and Whitney knew about the fan blades being an issue. Yeah. And sent out a service bulletin about it in 2008. And this company never fixed the airplane? It's yeah. kind of more complicated than that. So though. the first service bulletin didn't actually apply to the engines in question. Well, this specific engine. I realize it's a service bulletin, not an AD. I understand Correct. that. However, service bulletins are not meant to be ignored. There's okay, a reason so for l- that. Okay, so let me go, because there's five different service bulletins. Right. Okay. So the first one didn't apply. Okay, cool. The second one asked for an x-ray inspection. They did that. They complied with that service bulletin. Mm-hmm. The third one said a shrinkage porosity condition in excess of inspection has been identified in some first stage blades. They specifically found affected blades and recommend the replacement of these blades at different intervals based on the observed conditions. They complied and none of them fell under those conditions. The next one was basically some of the same stuff. They complied. However, the last one. Quote, the durability of PT1 blades is not optimal. Change the blades to one without an internal cavity to limit the possibility of porosity. End quote. This was not complied with. So they should have changed out the blades? And yes. specifically, they should have changed out the blade once it hit 10,000 flight hours. Which is why it was a service bulletin and not an AD. An AD requires you to do it immediately. A service bulletin means you can do it at the next possible maintenance interval but they had 10, to have 000. hit that maintenance interval in eight years. They hit right. that maintenance interval 93 flight hours before this crash. They did maintenance at 10,004 flight hours and did not remove the blades. 93 flight hours later. It's like they asked you to do it for a reason. What do you know? Look at and that. That was so precise too. <laughs> like 10,093 yeah. flight hours. Yep. Technically 10,097. You know yes. what I mean. But I yeah. mean, that was pretty spot on. Good job, Pratt and Whitney. Yeah, they knew the tolerance. Well, and they understood, like, it was a problem, right? Like, if it wasn't a problem, they wouldn't have told you to replace the damn fan blades, right? Like, I I hate, I hate, I hate when companies do this, when they're like, eh, we can wait. No, you can't. There's a reason that these are, that you have to comply with them. I agree. (sighs) Because stuff like this happens, and then it's not recoverable, and then people die. Uh Uh-huh. And it's on you. Ready to take a break? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We've been going for a while. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, we're back. So for some There's not really. Stuff. There's not really findings per se. They do these kind of like sections about things that they call conclusions. Yeah. 
things that they find wrong. And we're not going to really go through actually that many of them. We're going to talk in brief about some of these. And primarily, first of all, we're going to talk about those blades. Yeah. That they were supposed to have changed. And they didn't. This was a known thing. And they opted not to comply with this. Also, can we talk about how they had the maintenance done and it was not at uh-huh. an approved spot? Like, they didn't they didn't uh-huh. have it do, like, officially? Uh-huh. Like, what the heck's up with that? Uh-huh. Allow me to read to you from the Wikipedia page. And yes, I know it's the only the best of sources. <laughs> As oh, we say. by the way. Four days after this accident, an ATR-72 in their fleet also had an incident, so they grounded their entire fleet yes, of ATR they aircraft. Did. Yep. I, I don't know what the incident was. I didn't read anything else about it, but they had an incident, so they're like, nope, screw this entire fleet. I'm going to read this. We also need to talk about the first officer, one of oh, them. Oh, yeah. I was going to say. Because it's not relevant to everything else. As a matter of fact, it kind of segues into the next thing. So, quote, we're speaking of first officer A here. The training. The training first officer. officer. Yeah. Total of 1,742 hours of flying experience with a meager career progression. His training records reflect frequent observations relating to poor, slow progress and unacceptable performance. However, he remained on the job and after necessary review, he was being considered acceptable as per the minimum acceptable standards of PIA and CAA Pakistan. He held a valid commercial pilot license. He had valid medical fitness. He joined upgradation or upgrade training on Airbus A310 as a first officer. However, he was unable to cope with the requirements and was sent back on the ATR aircraft and was restricted to remain a first officer. Okay, then. So he had issues. So why is he even flying at all? I guess he was considered a good enough pilot to at least fly the ATR. I don't want to get into the politics of this, but Pakistan has some issues with pilots. And this has happened recently, more recently than this accident. So this accident was their first insight into potentially fraudulent pilot licenses. Oh, God. They ended up getting rid of the majority of their pilots I think that the accident that that most pertains to is later in our schedule. Yes, the A320. Basically, a very large chunk of pilots in Pakistan flying for airlines, fraudulent pilot licenses, they terminated them all immediately. Well, I would hope so. And they got banned from pretty much everywhere on Earth. So, that was also a thing. Oh, I remember that. But it did not uh, pertain to this flight crew. They did not have fake licenses. No. But, okay, but the the first officer B had less hours than this first officer. Mm -hmm. Which wasn't really super pertinent because he was already trained on the route. And I'm glad you say these things because here's the kicker in this entire incident. CRM, not a factor in the accident. Yes. For some reason, it was deemed that CRM, bad or good, would not have saved the crew. It had no factor in the accident. No, I would say that the maintenance, it destroyed the engine completely, right? So it would have happened whether or not they had good crew resource management. And that's kind of the worst part, is like... They could have done everything right and still died. Yeah. It's unfortunate They that, didn't. Right. They definitely they didn't. They didn't, but they could have, and still would have had bad crew resource, and still would have died. It didn't matter. Yeah. 
It's, I think they should still address the bad crew resource management, they and I'm do. sure they do. But it wasn't a, an actual factor in the actual accident. So, By the way, that the pertinent flight is not on our schedule because it's still under investigation. Yeah, that's what I figured. I mean, this one took four years. This just came out in November of 2020. Oh, dang. Yeah, this took four years for them to investigate. So, it even mentioned the word COVID in the investigation. Hold on. I, w- I was just pulling that up. So... During the concluding stage of the investigation, the NTSB in January of 2020 proposed a formation of a maintenance group to deeply analyze the available overspeed governor maintenance records. Since, okay. you know, yeah. it's fraudulent. Yeah. Good, good, good plan. Which was mutually agreed. However, due to COVID-19 traveling restrictions, the responsibility was delegated to the NTSB by the AAIB, and the activity concluded in October of 2020. The AAIB of Pakistan remained a nerve center to manage all these activities with a sole aim to identify the cause and ascertain measures that can avoid recurrence of such nature. So really the NTSB took a huge role in preventing this kind of fraudulent maintenance. maintenance. Yeah. Kind Which of an, unauthorized. About, yes. un, yeah. It's not really fraudulent. Kind of another weird thing, but a lot of this report was actually put together by other investigating bodies. It was just compiled which is probably and, why it sounded like it was a gigantic mess. Yeah, it's kind of. It was compiled by Pakistan. Yeah. Investigation body there, AAIB. And they still had their own portion of it. but the, They aided in every part of it, but in large part, it was a lot the BEA. It was a lot Because it was the kind BEA. of, you know, their kind of plane. Yeah, it was their plane. And I mean, if I looked at this, it would have been like, I didn't make this plane. You figure it out. Right. They were involved. The NTSB was involved. Canada was involved because the engines are from Canada. So... There's a lot going on here. Anyways, back to this whole thing I'm going to read from the Wikipedia page. Because this is pertinent to both the crew resource management side of things, but then also into the maintenance and PIA, because there's some issues. This is all quoted directly from the Wikipedia page. Again, best of sources. Following the crash, PIA received criticism of its practices and accusations that it did not investigate the aircraft defects thoroughly enough. The mother of the ATR-42's first officer, whichever one, we don't know, it doesn't say, reported that he frequently mentioned to her that PIA's aircraft are not fit to fly, and they should not be allowed to operate on dangerous routes, quote-unquote. Great! Two days after the crash, another PIA pilot reportedly refused to fly an aircraft with a faulty engine. Thank you! Yeah, me too! This was after several reports that PIA had a history of neglecting problems and of operating poorly overall as an airline. PIA responded that, quote, It defies common sense that pilots and engineers would fly an aircraft that does not meet safety standards and risk their own lives, end quote. I think this was their responses like, well, then why'd you fly them before? Because it was a job. Yeah. And people have since died. Yes. It was finally time to take a stand. So, therewith, again, quoting from Wikipedia, the chairman of PIA, Azam Segal, resigned six days after the crash, citing personal reasons. Uh-huh. Though there were reports of him being pressured to resign. Well, yeah. So this accident had some uh, resounding changes at PIA, as it needed, but also it's still going on. Currently. Also, if you know an engine's faulty, yeah. I'm not flying I'm not it. flying that thing. See, I don't, right? I don't know if they would have known this engine was faulty. It there was were... not visible on pre-flight inspection. Right. There were very small signs that they could have seen, but nothing clear. Like when they took off... It wasn't producing symmetric power. Mm. And that was because of the sheared fan blade. But the I don't know if sheared is fatigued, the correct term. Yes, the, the fatigued, fatigued broken. Fan blade. Yeah. So that is, yeah, a thing. 
So anyway, so that whole thing comes down to the maintenance practices and the fan blade not having been replaced with the new versions and Pakistan International just basically saying, why would we? Yeah. Which was a debacle. So, training. Ah. In situations like this, ultimately, I mean, obviously the crew resource management broke down. But still, I mean, this was, an, this was definitely an odd situation. And it's not necessarily possible that they would have been able to figure out what was going on in any sort of capacity. No. But because there was a lack of training on whose roles do what during an emergency situation yeah. at PIA, when they had this situation occur, nobody was paying attention to the propeller speeds during the first part of that no. whole accident flight. And they would have noticed an issue. If they were doing their job. Because they were so... There's three people in that cockpit, right? You need two people to double check the checklist. Which means someone could have been looking at the instruments. Right. And on top of that, they weren't monitoring speeds, like the airspeed of the airplane. Yeah. Really well at all. Like, once the emergency was happening... Their speeds were up and down and all over the place. They were not maintaining speed at all. Well, and then they knew something was wrong with engine one, but no one was looking at the propeller speed, the propeller angles, any of it. Right. It just went unnoticed. The freaking temperature of the engine. No one was talking about it. Yes, nobody was paying attention to these things. And then you had this jump seat pilot, like, giving dictations on what to do. Multiple times. And it was both. Whichever one was in the jump seat was giving dictations. It didn't matter. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the, the thing. is like in a normal airline operation and less prompted by the two flying pilots, normally when you're in that jump seat, whatever's going on with that airplane, you have no control over and you have no say over. You're not allowed to talk about it. Because you're not part of the flying of that airplane. Yeah. You cannot intervene in the crew resource management operations. That's a thing. Like that... that is how it works. When Once you're up cruising and everything's all hunky-dory, nothing crazy's going on, you can chat with the flight crew. Yeah. But during any kind of critical situation or any time that the airplane is below 10,000 feet and has to be in the... Sterile, sterile cockpit. cockpit. Sterile cockpit. Thank you. Why can't I not think of that? <laughs> <laughs> the sterile cockpit rules. Then they can't... They, they're not part of it. They have, yeah. to, they have to be quiet. You cannot interfere. That's just it. Yeah. And this, you know, it varies airline to airline. It varies country to country. There's there's, there's weird things about this rule. But still, in this case, it broke down CRM really bad. Because I get wanting to, like, call out what you notice, but you also can't distract and you can't take away from what the other two pilots are doing. No, but someone should have been monitoring airspeed, at least. Big time. So, when it comes to the airspeed... I think if somebody had been monitoring that the whole time, the only thing that they could have done differently, it still wouldn't have changed the outcome of this accident, unfortunately. No. But if they hadn't gone through the barrel roll and lost 5,100 feet... They I might would... have been able to get to an airport or somewhere they could have landed. I don't think they would have made it to an airport, but they probably would have had a better chance of having more time to find a place to go down. Maybe. I don't know. So part of the issue was that they flew into the mountains... Well, they were in the mountains to begin with. I mean, they were... No, I mean, like, they literally flew into and impacted a mountain. Yes, of course. So, But if they didn't lose all that altitude, would they have been able to glide down to a point where they could have... I don't know. What's it's hard over? to say. Cause... I'm not familiar with the topography around Islamabad. Yeah. Is it in a valley? Is it in a valley? Is it on top of the mountains? Islamabad is just at the foothills. 
I mean, especially okay. guys like it's imagine they were coming from Aspen and flying to here. Like it's pretty similar. They were over the mountains pretty much the whole way up until like final approach. So they were pretty much screwed no matter what they were going to do because they were in the mountains pretty much the whole flight. So, but the problem with this is like they lost a lot of altitude, which to be fair, I'm not sure that a really well-trained flight crew could have fixed this problem either because all of a sudden they had all of this right correction they would have done. They would have done the exact same thing. It was very possible the same thing had happened because to them. they didn't know what the, was actually going on with the left engine. And it right. doesn't sound like investigators are entirely a hundred percent sure either. Right. You know, we could recreate the scenario a thousand times over, and we just don't know. But point is, there was still a big breakdown in crew resource management. It needs to be called out. PIA didn't do this well. No, and having people in the cockpit. So the captain wasn't super experienced, but he wasn't like unexperienced right but the two first officers did not have a lot of flight hours no and because of their lack of i mean we've talked about this before lack of experience in the cockpit is not always a good thing like i realize you do need to have hours right Mm -hmm. to make sure that you know people do get trained but if you think about it here you have the 1500 hour limit right right neither of them Although, wait, did the first officer have the first officer A have enough hours? One had seventeen hundred hours, but yeah. fourteen hundred of those were on the ATR. Yeah, so, so that means he had been flying the he'd airplane. He'd been flying since the airplane way before three hundred hours. Yeah. yeah. So if you think about it, that like there was a reason why we put in place this fifteen hundred hour requirement. Yes. For a reason, because it was obviously a problem with crew training. Yes. And. The reason, They're a different country, to be yes. fair. But, and you know. the, the reason that these this is still not possible in some countries, and I kind of understand, is because there's a few things that happen. For one, those pilots, generally, it's there's not any good outlet for them. Like, in Pakistan, it's not affordable to just go and learn to fly. Right. In any sense of the means. That's like, how it is so many places. And, yeah, I'm not talking about just Pakistan. I mean, this is all over the world. Like... Even here, here yeah. even here it's hard, but like it is is a much more reasonable level here compared to where it is in other places where like they just can't do it. It is not possible. And so for them to fly, they have to usually be sponsored by some program and go out of the country to yeah. learn and get yeah. the basics. Or you have to figure out how to get into like some airline specific program where they can put you into one of their little training airplanes, get you to a minimum of not very many hours. Just enough to fly their airplanes, basically, and understand their airplanes. And that's what these kind of airlines do. And that's why they can do it with so few hours. And that's why those countries have low-hour requirements. In some countries like China, they'll actually still comply with the 1500 rule. But what they'll do is they'll send their pilots overseas. The government pays for it. They get all 1500 hours here in the United States at flight schools. And then go back to China and fly for the airlines. That's also a I thing. I mean, it works. The only reason I bring that up isn't that I, I don't think they could have flown the airplane. It's because of crew resource management. Yep. yep. That takes hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Exactly. It has to become second nature to rely on your fellow pilots. Well, yes. and even, not even that, even going so far as to saying, I'm doing this. But yeah. I do think that there is a certain respect that you gain for aviation and for flying airplanes and such. The... The further in you get, like, the more training you get before you even jump into an airliner. That's why I think the 1500 rule is, like, it's important. Because it does force you to gain a lot of respect and work your way up in size and in speed and in difficulty. 
it's it's basically what we call in, in education scaffolding, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. You're, you're building your way up, and you have to scaffold the right amount of stuff to get all the way up, so yes. that you understand the main quote unquote topic, right? So you can't like I I know this is a weird analogy, but we're no, music, it's perfect. We're music people, right? So mm-hmm. you can't just place a piece of music in front of someone who's never read music before and say play it. Right. That's not how it works. There's right. fundamentals. You have to teach them how to how to count rhythms and then how to read treble or bass clef and then right. you have to teach them what are these notes on the instrument you're learning to play. How do you put all of those together? It takes literally years. Right. To and do right amount of scaffolding. Now to go to an engineering uh, analogy of scaffolding. Scaffolding is usually built of trusses. If you're missing any limbs on that truss, it crumbles under yeah. pressure. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what happened here. And it's the same thing here, yeah. And that's the thing is like uh, with some of these airlines, and it's not to say just PIA, there's other airlines out there that this happens to, but they get these pilots in there with pretty minimal time. And what they've done is train them really well on normal operations. Right. Should the airplane encounter any issue outside of normal, they break down because they don't respect exactly what they're actually doing. They're in an airplane and that's incredible. But they don't understand what happens when something goes wrong. Ideally, I, I, I've heard the statistic, but I can't cite it. So I'm definitely just throwing it around. 90% of your training should be emergency situations. Yes. And how to get you, out of emergency situations. And that's yeah. kind of the whole thing is like when you. That goes for both flight and cabin crew. So in your flight training, you go through here in the United States, you go through your private pilot's license or private pilot certificate. And in that, I'd say more than half of your training, I mean, half of your training is all the practical things, learning weather, learning maneuvers, learning how to take off and land, those kinds of things, because you have to learn that stuff. The other half of it is basic emergency procedures. You lose the engine, what are you going to do? Your airplane, the engine's on fire, quit, it stalls, whatever the case, what do you do? That's half of the training. So that's the emergency half. IFR training and your IFR, getting your IFR rating and your commercial rating Those two really just teach you instrument procedures. There's a minimal amount of emergency that goes into that. That one's those are probably the two where it's like the most technical technical amount of work you actually have to do in learning. Then going into say you want to get a tailwheel endorsement or a twin rating, both of those heavily center on the emergencies, the differences that happen in an emergency, and that's it. Or in like dangerous situations for those airplanes. Or in, um, 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 what's that other rating that Brendan wanted to get with your dad? High performance. That too. Yes. Because that's all different. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing is like, you're not learning just technical things the whole time. You're literally learning how to deal with new emergency situations with every single added layer. Yeah. Again, scaffolding, working your way up. If you're just put into a cockpit and you learn how to fly in that cockpit, great. But if you don't have enough hours to practice... How are you going to get out of certain situations? Right. You're not going to know. You're not going to know. Right. And it's dangerous. Yep. My whole point behind... Sorry, we went into like a huge tangent about it, but... No, but it's my important. Whole, my whole point about that is they don't have the experience to not freak out when something happens. Right. Now, granted, if you end up accidentally in a barrel roll, you're allowed to freak out. Again, yeah. Yeah. Scary, scary stuff. And like we said, it CRM here, even if they had perfect CRM, it probably would have ended the same way. So I have a actually a list. I'm going to read this kind of verbatim. It's one of the finding conclusion things, whatever. Mm-hmm. 
Quote, due to this combined technical anomaly during following parts of the flight, the conditions were exceptionally difficult, i.e. may be considered as conditions of hazardous consequence, and it was expected that the cockpit crew may not be able to cope with the situation, and therefore they may not be relied upon to undertake the required or expected actions correctly. These are as follows. From 4.10 and 33 seconds to about 4.10 and 56 seconds. During this time, the number one engine had an in-flight shutdown, and the propeller speed had increased before engine shut down to about 102%. There's nothing they could have done about that. Right. They had no training for that. Right. Well, and conceptually, how much do we know that they understood about that? We what don't. that effect has on the airplane? No idea. In the subsequent minute-ish, the propeller speed decreased and became NCD, or non-computing data. Its behavior looked like a feather request. Then it unexpectedly increased again at an abnormal slow rate corresponding to propeller unfeathering. In the 50 seconds after that, during this part, the propeller speed increased to a very high value range of 120 to 125%, gradually reduced to 116.5%, and then increased to 123% again. During this part of the flight, the left side of the aircraft produced high drag values until the propeller speed began to rapidly decrease in an unexpected manner. In the subsequent... 24 seconds. During this part, the aircraft entered an uncontrolled stalled condition of flight where the aircraft lost about 5,100 feet and rolled right by 360 degrees and beyond. This had immense psychological impact on the cockpit crew and it impaired their capacity to perform normally. In the next eight minutes, during the last part of the flight when there were was no further technical degradation and the pitch the blade pitch angle and propeller speed had stabilized at a particular value. This new pitch angle was possibly below the low pitch in flight, i.e. in fine pitch range normally corresponding to ground operations. The aerodynamic drag of the left side of the aircraft was estimated to be seven times more than the drag usually expected during single engine flight envelope. End quote. These were all things they were not trained for nor expected to react well to. Right. And, yeah, when you're not trained for it, I don't know how you would expect them to. So, that's kind of the unfortunate Even thing. Even if you were trained for it, but how unfortunately, would you know that was what was going well, on? Well, and there's that piece of it, but there's also the piece of, like, eh, didn't change anything. No. Yeah. The probable causes of occurrence. That is what it's called. First, the probable primary factors. The dislodging slash fracture of one PT-1 blade of number one engine triggered a chain of events. Unusual combination of fractured slash dislodged PT-1 blade with two latent factors caused off-design performance of the aircraft and resulted into the accident. This is translated, obviously. Mm -hmm. The dislodging fracture of the PT-1 blade of number one engine occurred after omission from the EMM which stands for Engine Maintenance Manual, non-compliance of Service Bulletin 21878 by PIA Engineering during an unscheduled maintenance performed on the engine in November of 2016 in which the PT-1 blades had fulfilled the criteria for replacement but were not replaced. Fracture slash dislodging of PT-1 blade in number one engine after accumulating a flying time slightly more than the soft life of 10,000 hours, i.e. about 10,004.1 plus 93 hours due to a known quality issue. This aspect has already been addressed by redesigning of PT-1 blades by Pratt & Whitney Canada. So, it won't happen again because Pratt & Whitney Canada fixed it. Right. They fixed it in 2008. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. It's not supposed to happen. No. As long as you do the maintenance correctly, it should not happen. Probable contributory factors. 
A fractured pin and contamination inside the overspeed governor contributed to a complex combination of technical malfunctions. The pin fractured because of improper reassembly during some unauthorized slash undocumented maintenance activity. It was not possible to ascertain exact time and place when and where this improper reassembly may have occurred. Contamination slash debris found in overspeed line of the propeller valve module of number one engine probably introduced when the propeller systems line replacement units were not installed on the gearbox contributed to unfeathering of the propeller it was not possible to ascertain exact time and place when and where this contamination was introduced so i didn't super talk about this a whole lot but i said the pvm had contaminated oil in it they think part of it was from the bearing number six that was getting rubbed raw by the vibration of the messed up fan yeah Mm -hmm. But they also suspect that the system has it has what what was that again? The the line replacement unit were not installed on the gearbox, which also may have shed metal particles into the oil. Yeah. But they I mean, it's hard to say when contamination takes place. So it's like especially it's probably after the that... engine is destroyed. Yeah. What a concept. This is what yeah. happens when you fly, 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 make money, make money, make money. What was but you really... don't maintain. What was really cool actually, um, rather than just like go digging for contaminated oil, the first thing they did was take a CT scan. Yeah, that's cool. Which is just a 3D x-ray. Yeah. Like, that's usually used for, like, medical imaging. Mm-hmm. That was really smart. Yeah. 10 out of 10? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Important observations. This is literally its own section after the probable causes, and I'm going to read a couple of these. Maybe all of them. I don't know. I read through a couple of them. In February 2017, PIA Engineering reviewed the life of the old design PT-1 blades. They decided to change the soft life as a hard life of 10,000 hours, irrespective of the conditions given in the maintenance manual. So, saying that the blades had a shelf life of 10,000 flight hours. Right. But after issue of the first immediate safety recommendation by the AAIB in January of 2019, both PIA Engineering and the CEA of Pakistan... Maintained the stance that the service bulletin, that last one they didn't obey, was not important. Oh, really? You don't think it was important? Here's an accident. Yeah, that happened to your, your country aircraft. Yeah, it. Yeah. Because you didn't replace the thing it told you to replace. Because fly, 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 make money, make money, make money. Because you would have had to pay to get it fixed. This is, like, the problem, right? Is they mm-hmm. would have had to pay to replace the blades. Gotta spend money to make money. And... Just saying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and because of that, they were like, oh, they look fine. No. It's the inside. The in... You gotta... Uh, listen to our podcast. I don't know. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like we talk about this a lot. Yeah, we do. We do for <laughs> like, a reason. It, it happens with so many airlines. Just follow, especially when there's a service bulletin. Mm-hmm. It's yes. there for. It's not like they just did it for s and giggles. Okay, you don't, right. ha- you don't have to wait for an airworthiness directive. No, because it shouldn't have to wait for an airworthiness directive. They found that there were CRM trainings taking place, but they were not effective, and the CEA did not have an effective mechanism to gauge the efficacy of the CRM trainings. Why don't you take it from another country and implement it in your own? You should be learning from like the ICAO and from. Yeah, major airlines around the world and how they do it. Yeah. There are resources for this that they all like to share with one another because they also fly in the skies with you. Another thing that they noticed was, so nowadays a lot, most airlines use some form of flight data monitoring to monitor how good you are as a pilot. Yes. Mm -hmm. They didn't do that. Of course they didn't do that. 
They also had flight inspectors from the CEA to supervise simulator sessions for flight crews in which, you know, you're supposed to identify, oh, you, you're you not great at this. I don't want to say you suck at this, but like, this is a weak spot, right? Right. PIA wasn't really taking note of those weak spots. No, because as Nick keeps saying, fly, 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 make money, make money, make money. But especially since they had people with fake licenses, yeah. I feel like they weren't even taking in their own people's safety into well, consideration. I mean, if there's a sign of fly, 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 make money, make money, make money, it's also the fact that this airplane was on its sixth flight of the day and it was only three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, that's I mean, I get much. it that it's doing short routes, but holy crap, they're flying this airplane on a lot of routes. And every time you cycle that airplane, that's a lot of wear. You know, airplanes that do a lot of cruise flight don't actually wear that much. Airplanes that have to cycle like this, where they're just freaking flying the crap out of the airplane, landing it eight times a day, nine times a day. That's insane. That's insane amount of wear on that airplane. I'm kind of surprised that the blades didn't, didn't fracture, before. fracture before the 10,000 hour mm -hmm. requirement. Mm -hmm. I think part of that is because blades aren't based on flight cycles. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. But even so, when you run that engine, turn it off, run it, turn it off, run it, turn it off, run it, turn it off, it's going to wear on the engine. Well, it's going to wear on the engine, but not necessarily the fan blades. Particularly, it's the heating and cooling effects you have on engine parts, though. And this is in the cold part of the engine. Right. So that is not a factor here. Yeah, and that's fair. That's why cold dwell fatigue exists. That's why it's called cold dwell fatigue. It's not that it's in, it's super freaking cold where it mm -hmm. is, but it's in the cold part of the engine. Right. Yep. So... Anywho. The rest of it is a bunch of controls engineering crap I really don't want to read. I took that class once upon a time, and I have no, no desire to relive that. <laughs> That's okay. We'll move on to recommendations. Thank you. We're also going to be kind of brief in the recommendations, because there's not actually a whole lot It's probably a bunch of the here. stuff we already talked about. Yep, pretty much. There's not a whole lot here. The two main recommendations that they created were, for one... Replace all the PT-1 fan blades on every ATR in PIA's fleet. There you immediately. go. Immediately. Yeah. And Regardless they, of flight hours, right? And, yeah. Yeah. And they did this before they let them fly again. And as a matter of fact, I don't think there's many of them left in PIA's fleet anymore. They probably still operate I them. I can look at that. They probably still operate them. But point being, they... Like, this was a thing. They yeah. had to replace them before they let them go back into the yeah. sky. Yeah. So you didn't, you didn't follow this once. People right. died. Now you got to do it to all your airplanes. Right. They currently have three ATR 42500s on service and one ATR 72. Well, in any case, they don't have many of them. So that wasn't much they needed to do. The other main recommendation that they created was for this OSG unit. The Overspeed governor. That. Govna? Govna. The one that makes sure that the, the, the fan The thing doesn't overspeed? Yeah. Yes. To inspect them more regularly, essentially, and find any failures, correct it, fix them. And, and do is, it properly. This is one of those circumstances where it was a pin. Right. One pin. One pin. It's like a, the washer. It's like the washer. Except this was... This was worse, but because there was more than just a pin that caused this, but... It was a pin, it was a blade, and it was metal in the oil. But any one of those things could have made this a big problem anyway. Yeah. Well, actually, any of those things on their own, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah, probably. It's that all three happened. Yes. Because bad maintenance. Bad maintenance practices... So along those lines, to the airline itself, of course, the fan blades, the fan blades, the OSGs, but also to comply with 
regular like maintenance intervals and service bulletins and ads and do it at and when you're facil- supposed to do that at a facility that they're supposed to be done at where there's oversight and documentation what a concept wow wow it's like we're in the 2010s 20s yeah. well i know at I, the time. when this when this when this happened it was 2016 right yes so you know but i shouldn't even have to be saying that for 2016 are you freaking kidding me right come on <laughs> also safety management systems also crm training yeah these are all things they recommended to pia all of the above Along those lines, to the CAA of Pakistan, they also said they need to have a lot more oversight of PIA, which, again, will come up whenever the A320 report comes out. Oh, boy. Guarantee it. That was a big misstep. Anyways, they recommended having a lot more oversight, and obviously they didn't entirely do that. Also, having a lot more control over, like, the airline's maintenance and oversight of that. Also, crew resource management programs, making sure that they comply with, like, ACO standards and that those CRM programs are super effective. Yes. So that's the majority of it. And then to ATR, they – this was kind of an odd one. I'll read this one. ATR is to consider inclusion as part of the training philosophy of a procedure in the relevant aircraft publication to handle the aircraft in case of severe structural damage to correlate an aerodynamic degradation similar to the event – to enable the cockpit crew to respond to such situations in a more appropriate manner. Again, I don't know how much that would have changed It things. really wouldn't we have. We really don't have that kind of information. Once that engine was that mu- was damaged to that extent, there was no yeah. way they could come back from that. It Correct. was it had a mind of its own. They couldn't control it. Right. Even if they wanted to. Right. So it's one of those where it's like, could it have helped? Mm, probably not. Should it should it happen anyway? Yeah. Right. <laughs> but it probably they would have probably ended up in the same place they were if they had changed any of their right. resource management or any of that. Right. And then with the FAA, it wasn't really a recommendation. This was more of like a what they asked of the FAA and the FAA helped them with, which was helping them rewrite the company maintenance manual for the OSG repair so that they put it back together normally yeah. and correctly so that it would function properly. So that was a thing. You Proper know, maintenance. Yeah. And thanks to the help of one of the most advanced of aviation authorities in the world. And then to the FAA slash Collins Aerospace. Collins Aerospace has issued a service information letter. To remind operators to maintain proper cleanliness and FOD prevention during engine and propeller storage and maintenance. The FAA and College Aerospace are to consider a system review and possible improvements to the oil system filtration inside the propeller control system to enhance existing protections against debris entering the PVM, the PVM OSG line, including feather solenoid and SLPS solenoid that could affect safety functions. So make sure nothing gets into the oil. Basically, they just wanted an extra filter system to make sure that that oil doesn't doesn't have debris in it should it flow into where it's not supposed to be. So part of the issue with that, if each mechanism had its own separate oil supply, this would not have maybe snowballed as much as it did. Right. But the PBN, the OSG, and so many other things shared an oil supply. Right. Yeah. Because in some ways it logistically makes more sense when you design the engine. It does logistically until you have contaminants. Right. And it's like, I'd rather have one thing stop working than everything stop working. Correct. I'll agree with you there. But now, theoretically, 
as far as I'm aware, they each have a different filtration system after each mechanism so that if there are contaminants, mm-hmm. it just, it's like having a little mesh barrier. Right. It'll well, and we've talked about that with an- another accident before, too. Several, actually. There was, I know there was one specifically we covered. Do I remember what it is? Mm, the nope. 737s? Uh, yeah, for the, for yes. the rudders. Yes, that. Because the rudder hardovers. Yes. It's just, and that was for hydraulic fluid, right? That wasn't for oil. But either way, I mean, I mean contaminants and fluid is a bad idea. You don't yeah. want contaminants in anything. Yes. So. Fuel, oil, hydraulic fluid, none of it. It's all bad. It's all bad. Bad, yeah. bad, bad. All okay. right, friendos. That's it. That was all of that. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That was so. Long. Yeah. Pakistan International Airlines flight six sixty one. Good job. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to our patrons. You guys are awesome. If you want to become a patron or you want to see what's included, there's two things you can do. You can go to the website and you can go to the Patreon info tab. It tells you what's included. Or you can just go to patreon.com and look up Hard Landings Podcast. We pull right up. You'll know who we are because it's our uh, logo. So I'm also – so one of the perks, benefits, what have you, of being a patron is you get to listen to our post-episode conversations, of which in this one I'm going to spill a little bit of tea about that uh, recent – pakistan international airlines flight it is not yet out of investigation but they've released some stuff and i'm gonna talk about it and we also just sometimes just talk about random stuff and jokes we do jokes oh i have jokes all right i got jokes i like jokes so so we're gonna look at some oh and i got some good ones too some of the kids some of the kids told them to me and i was like "Mm, that's a good joke that's a good joke (laughs) so we'll we'll go we'll talk about that and then some jokes too And have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast, and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.